As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The race is on, and now we're in clear countdown to the start of the season in less than a month's time. F1 factories have cranked into life, we've got at least part of a calendar, and drivers are getting back behind the wheel in preparation for the Austrian Grand Prix. After months of inactivity, things are getting serious. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me today are Karine Chandock and Glenn Freeman. Uh, Glenn, good to have you back on the podcast. I guess you're at a loose end now that Bring Back V10's podcast has finished its season. Yeah, I thought I was finally get, going to get some weeks off of uh, recording podcasts and talking to people like you, Ed. Uh, Bring Back V10's has finished for now. We did a bonus episode, so we had 11 episodes in Series 1. And uh, quite good timing for me to appear on here because we have confirmation now that Series 2 is coming back very soon. So I'm going to be flat out working on and researching those with the help of people like you, Ed. People are as enthusiastic about that era as we are. So, um, yeah, everyone can keep an eye on our social media accounts with at We Are The Race because as soon as I have a, a go date for Series 2, I'll let everyone know. But it's good to know it's coming quite soon and hopefully won't be too far behind the start of the F1 season. I'll tell you what, Glenn, I enjoyed listening to Bring Back V10. I, um, I, I, I listened to every one of those episodes, but I also lost count of how many times you said... That'll get its own episode. So I reckon you've got to sign up for season 22, not just season two now. Yeah, the, the list the list for series two and beyond is incredibly long now. We'll probably pick about another 10 for series two. And uh, and of course, Karim, we'll have to have you back because you were on the first episode. Well, first two yeah, episodes. Yeah, no, I, I, I look forward to it. I still I still think that's one of the, you know, as an era, the my favourite across the board. I have to ask, because obviously you're not on a vodcast like you normally are with Sky Sports F1. This is audio only. But everyone's missed out on what seems to have been about 10 minutes of you readjusting your camera. Is that so we, we get to see your light fitting nicely on, on the ceiling rather than just your bookshelf? Well, no, I mean, because this is audio only, I haven't bothered putting in the camera down in, in, the, in the right place in the first place. But what's happened is I'm using my phone and it's just sliding around the table. And I haven't, I haven't thought this through, really. 
But, um, you know, I get a good view of Glenn's kitchen and some cookbooks in the background, I see. So, yeah, we, yeah, and we get to see your right knee. You get to see my right knee, yeah. It's not <laughs> as good as my left knee. <laughs> Is this the unseen bit of all the Sky programmes then? Karoon's camera falling over? Uh, no, those ones I, uh, I, I, I take slightly more seriously for some reason. <laughs> You save your professionalism for the uh, for the proper stuff. Exactly, there's uh... only so much of professionalism I've got, so I've used it all <laughs> up already today. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. We, we've seen you what your racing career is like, so we know professionalism is in, uh, <laughs> is in short supply. Um, but actually, we will call on some of your racing uh, experience for our first topic. Obviously, with everything getting back going, we are actually seeing some cars on track. Mercedes have got two days of testing planned with the 2018 car at Silverstone for Valtteri Bottas and Lewis Hamilton. That starts tomorrow. Uh, we've seen Lando Norris, Alex Albon behind the wheel of F3 cars. There's various drivers turning up in all sorts of machinery around the place. How important do you think it is for a driver to get behind the wheel before Austria? I think it's really important, Ed. Um, you know, I, I remember in 2009, um, I'd never done any kart racing, but in 2009, I bought a kart just to keep myself sharp. And I thought this is an excellent way to stay sharp between races. So I used it, um, you know, all the time, really, for for the next five, six years. And uh, I remember even, you know, after the winter break, when I was doing WEC or, uh, you know, other championships, ELMS and stuff like that, I would go out to Pembury with um, my friends from Double R Racing or from T-Sport who had a, a Formula 3 car and do a day. Um you know, at the start of the 2010 season, um, you know, obviously I got the deal with Hispania very late, but I we didn't do any testing, no shakedown. And it's really funny, I ended up going to Valencia to do a World Series test with ISR, and Ricardo and Hartley were there, and lots of other drivers, um, and I ended up quickest at the test, which is really quite funny. Um, and, but it, it was ju- it's just a really good way to knock the cobwebs off. And I think it's all well and good playing the simulators and they're all doing these esports races and all that. But nothing gets the nerves sharpened up and, and awake like a bit of karting, even with a shifter kart, frankly, if you can't drive a race car. It's a good point, isn't it, Glenn? Because this this is a problem for, for drivers, even in normal circumstances, let alone these extreme conditions, where actually practice is a, is a premium it's very very difficult to get behind the wheel of a formula one car there's a testing ban that's going on which of course is why mercedes is using the two-year-old car because you can't test the the current car you could do a you could do a promotional day if they got any left but yeah it's it's strictly strictly limited so it's unusual because no other sports really are quite so restricted in that regard you know if you're a tennis player at least you'll have had half a chance of going out and practicing with your racket or whatever you know most sports you can at least practice in some way but for formula one it's extremely difficult yeah tennis is probably quite an easy one to do socially distanced as well but yeah f1 drivers tell us at the best of times don't they that it's it's so difficult and it's such a drawback of our sport in a way that it's so difficult to get track time and to get physically into a car but at the same time you know how many drivers have we heard saying they've never had this long without sitting in a cockpit of any kind and I think it's really interesting what Karun said there, that yes, some of them have been doing the virtual stuff and it's it's a type of racing, but how many how many drivers that are new to esports have we heard say some of the sensations are the same, but ultimately you don't have that seat of your pants feel of what the vehicle's doing. And when they get to Austria and they've just got, you know, free practice and then straight into qualifying, that's the bit that they're they're going to be missing. So I don't think that just because someone's been doing the virtual Grand Prix or the Race All-Star Series or Formula E, anything that they've been doing, 
that won't have been enough. So I can see why there's this this big appetite now for people to get in any sort of real car they can. And I think also they've got to invest in themselves. You know, I appreciate that doing a day in an F3 car, a World Series car, costs anywhere. I think an F3 car is probably about nine, ten thousand a day. World Series car probably about fifteen thousand uh, pounds or euros a day, uh, depending where you are. So I get it, it is a you know it's not cheap to do a day, but you have to invest in yourself. You know, it, it's you have to think of yourself as a business, and and you're making yourself better. Um, you know, to deliver for the season. And I, and I think drivers, racing drivers are notorious for being tight and not opening up their own checkbooks. Um, that, that's just a fact. We all are. But I think the in these sort of cases, I was I always took the view that you have to look at the long term view and you have to invest in yourself like a business. This practice is almost about the drivers just making sure they're kind of switched on and woken up, isn't it? Because People say, oh, they only take 10 laps to get going. But if you're going to waste 10 laps in free practice in Austria doing that, you're wasting time. And it's also things like the neck muscles, right? You know, that we often hear the drivers talking about you, whatever you do in the gym isn't as good. I remember being at Pembury and um, my friend uh, Boyo at Double R, who runs the team, brought this bag of lead weights that he'd got from, from the wheel balancing place. And my entire helmet was just, we put so much lead on there just to make the helmet, you know, heavy. And we went out with just full tanks. You know, he filled the car up with fuel, just went round and round, lap after lap after lap. And, and by the end of it, my neck really, really felt it, you know. And, and actually, I thought this is a really good way to warm the neck muscles up before before the season. So, you know, I was, I was interested, actually. I saw some pictures of Lando at Silverstone, but I didn't see any lead on that helmet. And I thought, yeah, if you were in one of Boyle's cars, you would have had a, you'd have had a ton of lead on there already. And missed a trick uh, on that one. But of course, it's not only the uh, the drivers in some cases. Mercedes have said that what they've got is is kind of a full chance to get used to the protocols. So they're doing all the social distancing. They've got the protective equipments. They'll presumably do all sorts of runs to suit what the work for the drivers. And they could maybe simulate the odd session just, to, just so they all know where they are in the garage and what they're doing. You know, all these things just so that it's not necessarily second nature, but almost second nature by the time they get to Austria. And a team that hasn't gone through that sort of full simulation almost won't be quite as relaxed with the whole thing. That that says probably quite a lot, doesn't it, Glenn, about Mercedes, the way they approach it. They're not going to be the only ones who do this. We know a number of teams are looking at it. Ferrari, they're going to do it, obviously. But it, it shows that you can leave no stone unturned because, again, if you're going to spend the first Austria weekend getting used to it, that's a weekend wasted. Yeah, it's exactly like your point about the drivers. They can't afford to waste 10 laps on track and the teams can't really afford to waste 10 minutes off track. So it's it's familiarity with those new protocols, but I think they'd have done it anyway, even if we went back into racing in a conventional way in the paddock because operational sharpness is so important in F1 and it's one of those often unseen difference makers between the best teams and those that maybe struggle. And you could definitely see, again, we haven't seen team personnel with this long a layoff in the past where they've not been at least tinkering with cars, let alone full on working with them under pressure. So I think it's really important. I wouldn't be surprised still in those first couple of weekends to see teams have unexpected problems, maybe not the obvious sort of finger trouble type things, but just just some sort of missing piece of sharpness that would normally, as you say, Ed, would be second nature. Some of that's going to be missing and, and you know, we are all just normal humans. It could 
it can take you a little bit of time to get back into the swing of things. So I think all the teams will be very mindful of that, particularly with those first two races in Austria. And they haven't done a pit stop since Abu Dhabi, have they? They haven't done a live high-pressure race pit stop for a long time now. So I think uh, for the mechanics who, who are with those wheeled guns with the car coming towards them, seven months is quite a long time not to have done that. And you have to remember that, that the pit stop practice, it's not just a thing they do at the circuit. They do do that at the circuit, but also it's part of the factory regime for when the race team's there. So they will do practice pit stops there. So they haven't been doing that either. Do you think we'll see variation between drivers in particular in how how sharp they are? Not just because of who's done what, but also because some drivers will be presumably a bit more comfortable with having a bit more of a run at it. And some might just feel undercooked, especially after by F1 driver standards, several months of probably the, the most inactive they, they'll have been able to be for those who are who have been pretty confined. I think even if we see those differences, Ed, we won't ever hear a driver admit it. I think they they will all be, you know, full of bravado of how they don't feel rusty and they, you know, they feel great and their preparation's been amazing, blah, blah, blah. And they thank their physios and sponsors for all their equipment. But I think the the... The interesting thing for me will be really on that first Friday. You know, if the drivers don't get warmed up by the end of that Friday, then they don't deserve to be racing drivers. You know, I think, it, as you said, you sh- by the end of the first free practice session, at the latest, all the cobwebs should be long gone. Um, and and really, if we, it, what will be interesting for us to see as sort of objective observers is for those errors in FP1, because actually Austria's, it's a pretty unforgiving circuit, isn't it? We've seen people, you know, make errors. You've, you've got the last two corners, which are tricky. You've got um, those two double lefts, you know, in the middle of the lap. We saw Valtteri, remember, last year going wide. And um, the downhill braking for turn three as well is a tricky corner. So I think we, you know, there's plenty of... It's not like Sochi, is there, where there's just room everywhere to go wide. Um, We've got some yeah, gravel think, traps, hasn't it, as well? That's what I take. You know, there's, there's it punishes you, punishes drivers for an error. Um, so I'll I'll be interested to see FP1, yeah. And of course, it's going to be challenging for the teams in that regard because one thing the Red Bull Ring guarantees is you're going to get through a lot of front wing assemblies, aren't you? Because of those sausage curves, and, and we've seen teams in the past. John McLaren, I remember a few years ago, ran out of their new spec because they kept just hitting them on curves, and then suddenly that's your whatever it is, hundred fifty thousand, hundred twenty five thousand pound bit of manufacturing uh, out the window. And so you're going to have two of those back to back, plus rusty drivers and people maybe. Because so, the interesting thing about rust, it's not that anyone will forget how to drive, but it's that being completely comfortable. And if you get into a position where you're trying to get that last half tenth and you're not 100% with it, when drivers sort of force the issue, that's when mistakes tend to happen, isn't it? Rather than letting the car come to them. And anyone who feels they have to try harder might actually just make more mistakes. It's the difference between the subconscious and the conscious, I think. You know, when when it, you're in the zone and you've been driving all the time, um, you know, automatically when they've got to change a button, uh, a setting on the steering wheel, the thumb or the, the fingers will go straight away to it. They don't need to look for it. By having this long a period out of the car, you know, it doesn't happen by second nature. You have They'll have to think about it a little bit. So it's those little things that will add up, um, I think, especially on the, the first weekend. But the other thing, actually, to your point about, you know, things like the spares and stuff. I was talking to a couple of the team managers last week about this because they effectively are having to plan for a season without knowing how many races there are. 
you know, so how how do they plan how many front wings they produce, how many suspension bits, how many engines, gearboxes? You know, they're all, uh, at the moment, the only thing they could do is plan for the maximum of 18. And certainly both the TMs that I spoke to were planning for 18. But I'll tell you what, for the smaller teams, that's quite a big difference of resource. You know, if you're planning components for 12 races or 18, that's that that'll affect a lot of their their budget in terms of this year and potentially you know how they build the car and build parts for next year yeah the calendar is, is, a, is an important thing to, to talk about isn't it glenn we'll, we'll get back to maybe some of that that challenge but just in in general we now know we're going to have red bull ring red bull ring two races back to back uh we're going to have silverstone back to back we've also got races at the hungara ring at barcelona spa monza behind closed doors races which is which is strange but i guess we should say formula one's done a pretty good job to get into a position where it can start in july i remember thinking early on when everything was locked down that if we can get going second half of august that would have been pretty good probably the best case scenario so this it's positive at least that things are going even if everything is a little bit stressed yeah i hadn't quite considered that since the the first eight races have been made official i hadn't, I hadn't considered it in that way until you said you were going to ask us that question and it really is a a good a great achievement for F1. Yes, we've had some other sports get going or are getting going around a similar time. We've had racing in America resuming sooner, but these are all domestic things. You know, NASCAR and IndyCar haven't got the same amount of international travel, obviously, and dom- domestic sports like football don't really involve that. This is I I think this is going to be the the first big example of a lot of people moving around internationally for sport that we're going to see. And for F1 to pull that off and all the measures that we know they're taking and the way they're going to protect people and kind of try to avoid too much interaction between, I think they call it bubbles in the paddock, didn't they? Working all of that out in the time frame that they have to get us back to racing from the start of July is, is a massive achievement. And I think when all this talk about where are we going to be racing, are we going to be doubling up at certain places behind closed doors, all of the positives of achieving that and the time frame that they've done it outweigh any of the negatives for me. I think it's it's incredible that here we are now, what, a month away from racing resuming. That that's remarkable and, and exciting. It is strange not really knowing how everything's gonna work. We know the race are gonna be biospheres. We're still not completely sure of exactly in our cases what the media rules will be. You know, normally both myself and Karun certainly would be uh would be on the ground in Austria, but obviously media heavily restricted there we don't know exactly what the rules are that will govern that uh, running through the european season and even the rest of the year and once we've done those eight races all in western europe we don't really know exactly what's going to happen you know azerbaijan russia china looks pretty positive japan they're not selling tickets at the moment mexico brazil look a little bit iffy they want to run usa they can't have spectators under the rules that are in place at the moment still a few months away though vietnam we don't know whether they want to have two races relatively close together because the next next year's race would be in april and there's all these possible double headers so we could have double headers china bahrain as a double header possibility potential for european races coming back it's really odd isn't it because we just we just don't know exactly where everything's going to be and you're right about the number of races right now we can be pretty confident those eight european races will happen and that's good because that ticks one box because the sporting regs require eight races minimum to constitute a championship then they've got to get up to enough races for the TV broadcasters to to pay up, as it were, that's quite important for the for the revenue. So it's really really hard to know where where we're going to be, and we're going to have to be quite fluid about this. I think throughout the, the whole 
the whole rest of the year. And that's going to be difficult for drivers and teams as well, not just those doing logistics, just not knowing what's going on and not knowing how long the championship is. How does that impact the way a title contender might make a decision in a certain situation if you don't know if there's three races left or ten? Well, I think, first of all, I, I agree with both of you. I think it's an amazing achievement that we've got these races confirmed. I, I genuinely didn't think we would go to any races before August. I just didn't think it would happen. So fair play to, to F1 and, and, and the organisers, really, for making it happen. Um, I think, at the end of the day, Ed, they've got to count. They've got to make every race count, haven't they? They've got to go for the wins. They've got to go for the big points every time because there could be less races than planned. So I think when it comes to your final question about the wheel-to-wheel battle, the championship contenders have always got to go for the bigger points, I think, in this situation. Um, they can't sit back and be conservative and take the points um, as much as they could have done with 22 races. I think we're going to have the eight, obviously, in Europe. We're going to have, I could see, three in the Middle East with two Bahrain, one Abu Dhabi. So there's 11. Now, there's that gap in between from, let's say, uh, the Monza date, which is early September, until late November, right? There's that two-month window where... The question marks lie over, are we going to go to Asia and do some races there? Or are we going to go further west and do a bunch in, in, in the Americas? Um, and I think that there's, that, that'll just unfold as it unfolds. But, you know, it, it's a bit like our whole lives at the moment with COVID, isn't it? You know, you, you go to the supermarket with a shopping list. And you can never really get everything on that shopping list because the stock, the shelves aren't as well stocked as they would have been in normal life. So you have to be a bit flexible and go, yeah, okay, you know what? I'm not going to get mushrooms today. I'm going to have to buy aubergine. I don't know. It's. I think there's, there's, we've all had to actually learn. I think it's been a life lesson for all of us, really, in, in having to be a bit more flexible and I mean, look at the way we're doing these podcasts. Look at the way we're making television at Sky. We're all learning about adapting and working in the new way of life. And I think, honestly, even once COVID is gone and hopefully we'll get a vaccine soon and and the world goes back to a more of a normal way, we would all work differently. We're all we've all working in a much more efficient way, frankly, in terms of time. You know, you you two would normally be sitting in my living room eating carrot cake. Um, having taken the time to drive up that, here. That's and, not going to change. But, yeah, but, you know, that I'll have to send you the carrot cake from a local delivery because time-wise, this is much more efficient. And it might, and and I it think, might be an aubergine cake for all I know. Well, there you go. Also, last time uh, we were at your house, Karun, I think uh, your wife promised me that I'd get chocolate cake. Well, I think you said biscuits, wasn't it? Oh, was it yeah, custard biscuits. cream biscuits were your weakness. Yes, definitely. Yeah, there you go. No, no, I, I'll, I'll have a packet for that. Um, but I think in the same way, F1, you know, we're all having to be flexible, aren't we? Just in the same way as daily life. It's something, actually, that I think F1 also deserves credit for this. It's so interesting what you were saying there about how the dynamic of not knowing how many races you have could actually influence what we see on track. Nobody can play the percentages because they don't know what percentage they're playing. But I actually, I like that F1 hasn't waited and hasn't dragged its heels until it feels it can get its 15 race calendar shored up they've gone right this is what we can do now let's get on with it let's get racing again and as Karun outlined there there is kind of this this window after the European season and we don't know yet what we're going to get there but I, I got incredibly frustrated sort of when we were at what you might want to call peak lockdown with other sports and championships who kept committing 
to publicise in new calendars and schedules and dates that they had no idea if they could hit that. And once F1 got out of that initial, oh, we've called off this race, but this one's still on. Oh, no, now we've called off that one. Eventually, they just went, right, everything is on hiatus. We're going to work to get back to racing whenever we can. And everything's up in the air. And, and when you ask them about after the eight races we have so far, they, they, they're good enough to tell us that it is still all up in the air and everything's being considered. And I think, I think that's really helped people inside and outside the sport kind of get, get ready for the return of F1, but be ready for it in the right mindset, which is, yes, there are still doubts about what races 9, 10, 11 and onwards will look like, but we can at least get on with this bit. And I think that's shown some real dynamic thinking from F1, which we haven't always seen in the past. What well, what do you guys think is a number of races we need for the world champion of this year to be a credible world champion in the record books? I, I my my number seems to I, I sort of bouncing on my head, but I think it needs to be twelve. I think if you had twelve races, then I go okay, that's a big enough number across a wide enough range of circuits that yeah, there's a it's 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 a proper enough world championship. Uh, what do you how think? many races were there in Renault V6 Asia when you run it? 12, I think. 12, funny that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, 12 feels like a nice round number. I think ultimately, ultimately, I think whether it's, for example, a worthy champion or whatever, it really depends what happens on track, doesn't it? Usually the champion is a, is a worthy winner. I think eight would feel a little bit uh, impoverished, shall we say. But even so, you go back to the 1950s, you know, we didn't have any races counting, and one of those was the Indy 500 for the first 11 years that was nothing really to do with Grand Prix racing, so effectively wasn't a, a championship round. And Formula One's been trying to get this 18-race calendar. I'd be amazed if 18 races happened. 15 seems very possible. 15 would be a absolutely incredible uh, season length. 12 is probably yeah. long enough, thinking about it a l- little bit more scientifically. I guess the problem with the less races there are, the bigger percentage each race is, and therefore, if some outrageous piece of bad luck befalls you, the bigger slice of the season that's impacting. So you're probably more prone to some sort of swings and roundabouts. and not Maybe you get the swings, but you don't get the roundabouts. So I would say maybe, I think 12 is quite a nice number because that reduces the chances of that happening. But ultimately, if, it, if we go out and Max Verstappen or Lewis Hamilton win eight out of eight and that's all we've got, well... They've they've dominated it, haven't they? So uh, I think, though, for Formula One's sake, we it's important. So it looks to the wider world like a like a proper season. This is why things like the Premier League have been so keen to finish properly, rather than having kind of a a season worked out with a final table based on points per game or whatever. Just so it feels proper. That's different, though, isn't it? Because you know the games remaining in football, the teams are all playing against each other in different fixtures each time, whereas. Here, we're going to have the same 20 drivers racing against each other each time. So to answer Karun's question, even if we only get the eight and then there's, you know, there's another peak or whatever and everything has to be locked down again, I'd take that because, it, you know, everyone's had eight chances to, to win a Grand Prix. Um, the, the bring back V10s fan and host in me would love 16 races because for me, you know, 16 was the number of races we had when I got into F1 and, and that sort of era of the 90s most of the time that's how many we had but we've got eight it seems that would be enough for me if that's all we've got but yeah you know any, as soon as you get into double figures um i think you're looking at a decent number of races and and as i say the pressure's on these guys we did a video on the race youtube channel a few weeks ago where we looked back on the last sort of 30 years and we looked at the halfway stage of each championship and saw how many times 
if you'd had, say, eight races instead of 16 or 10 instead of 20, how many times you'd have had a different champion? And it was it was something like eight out of the last 30-odd years. And none of those guys who would have won it instead of the champion in those seasons, you didn't look at any of them and go, well, that would have been ridiculous if he was the champion that year. So I think as long as as long as everyone gets a fair crack and we don't end up in a situation where, say, a driver or a team misses a race, then however many races we get, it's been even for everybody and whoever wins it will be deserving. Yeah, people have looked at the run of races and said, well, last year Red Bull had pole finished second, almost won with Verstappen in Hungary. They've won Austria the last couple of years and therefore does this give a big boost to to Red Bull? It's funny, actually, James Allison on the F1 Nation podcast that's put out by F1 uh, was asked, does this count a favour anyone? And he just gave the answer, well, whoever's got the quickest car. <laughs> and, you know, he is right in that regard, especially, and he he pointed out, which we've been talking about before, the fact that there were some unusual circumstances in the two Austrian Grand Prix that put Mercedes out of contention. They certainly could have won in 18 and 19. They had the cooling problem that wouldn't be a problem again that slowed them down. And then Hungary, because they'd had the upgrade in Germany that was making it quite hard to get the rear tyres to last in qualifying, I think. Verstappen's poll didn't reflect the fact that Red Bull was the quickest car, although Red Bull do like the Hungarian. Uh, what do you think, Karun? Do you think that just whatever the calendar is, it's going to pretty much favour whoever's got the best all-round car? Because, like Alison always says, it's about aiming for the average of the circuits. And even though that changes a bit, Spa, Monza, there's a few out. There's a few. It's not not perhaps the most even run if we just look at those eight races, but it's still there's still a spread, isn't there? Yeah, there's still a spread. I think really, even if we look at the full 22 races, the only outliers I see are, you know, Spa, Monza, Canada, possibly Baku and Monaco. You know, the, the, I think those are actually the only five abnormal, shall we say, circuits. The other 17, the, the pecking order isn't really going to massively change. You'd probably throw in Singapore as well, although there's a very good chance that won't be a problem either. <laughs> either this year so yeah it's uh you know performance will decide ultimately that's uh that that's the case so i, I think it is going to be un- an unusual championship though it will test teams in different ways that's what i quite like about it these rapid turnarounds ultimately the big team should be the best prepared to deal with it but I, i'm quite interested to see if we do see more mistakes toto wolf talked up the fact that reliability and avoiding reliability problems early on in particular is going to be very very important when teams are still a bit rusty and there's maybe a greater chance for little errors or finger trouble or not to notice things. They won't be able to analyse quite so closely all the components, etc., taking them back because it's so rapid fire. So that that's interesting. We may expose a few weaknesses in teams through this rapid fire schedule. I tell you, if there's one team, I think on the whole grid, that I think this eight races in 10 weeks benefits, it's Racing Point. Because I think they're going to they're gonna hit the ground running in that midfield battle if we look at what happened in testing, they're going to hit the ground running as the, as the front runner of that midfield battle and there isn't potentially enough time for the others to catch up. I think they also win because you know they, they admitted at the start of this year that they'd, they'd gone for this Mercedes clone car as a one-season punt before the rules reset and now they've had the added benefit of their one-season punt is a two-season punt. So if they, if they do do well out of copy in the Merc, they've got it for another year and obviously, development's going to be quite limited across these two seasons as well. So they, they could win across both the short term, as you outlined there, and the long term. And they're an outstandingly good team trackside as well. They, they just operate very, very well. They've overachieved 
for years. So yeah, I think I think we'd all agree on that. One thing that perhaps there's a little bit of debate about is the is the Racing Point driver lineup for next year. When of course they're Aston Martin. Glenn, it's been strange because Otmar Safnauer, the team principal, has said a few times things that sort of seem to confirm that it'll stay as Stroll and Perez next year. But these are kind of in the form of the classic non-denial denials, aren't they? And with people like Vettel and Alonso on the driver market, how how confident do you think we should be that that, that team lineup for next year is is completely set, do you think? Oh, well, it's fascinating. Um, you know, back end of last week, I think Racing Point put out a, their own Q&A with Otmar. And, and at the end, they asked him about the driver lineup. And I don't know if, if, if his answer was intended to tell us that they will have Perez and Stroll for the long term, it didn't do a very good job of it. Um, they, he, you know, there was some sort of line about the big change for us next year will be the Aston Martin branding above the door. But he didn't say both drivers are locked in for 2021. You'll see Sergio and Lance in the cars. So I just found that puzzling because, and this, this is, you know, a massive um, journalistic cliche, but when somebody tells you something, you particularly from a team PR point of view, you're supposed to look at what they're not telling you. And I just found it baffling that that was in there. And then the answer was non-committal. I could understand if he got put on the spot in an interview, you know, if he'd been on one of the Sky shows, for example, with Karun and the team, and had maybe been asked a question he didn't want to answer. But if he didn't want to answer it, or if the answer was going to be that rubbish, why did they include it? And I think that's really interesting. And I know, Ed, you've been following up on this. And I think we've, we know that, Perez does have a longer term contract and I think everybody just assumes that Lance Stroll will be in that team forever because his dad sort of leads the ownership team of it but I just I find it really interesting that that they that intentionally or not they've left the door open and what did you make of it Ed when you chased it up? Yeah well if you look at everything they've said in that Q&A they issued and in the previous interviews Otmar Schaffner had done some interviews and he'd, he'd made references to say that it's things like when he was it was put to him, there are other winning drivers out there. Said we prefer to get the best out of the drivers we have, and it's kind of well, it's not quite it. So I thought, right, let's ask the team. Right, do you consider that drive line to have been confirmed for twenty twenty one? And and the kind of answer I got to that official question was basically to point out what they've officially in, announced, which is last year they announced Perez had a three year extension to the end of twenty twenty two. And personally, I don't think there's any reason why Perez should be a driver who's up for debate in that team. He's a very very good performer they should keep him. You know, plenty of opposition teams would like to have a driver like, like Perez in there. The other thing they said is when we announced Lance Stroll for 2019, we said it was part of a long-term commitment to the team. And that remains the case. Well, those are, those are the, the official That wasn't things. the question you asked the team though, was no, it? No, what I asked them is are they, con- are they officially, exactly. officially confirmed? So this is a non-confirmation confirmation really, isn't it? That That's the interesting thing. And I, my personal reading of it is that and they have to be open on the question of Lance Stroll. He's got potential. He needs to get it together, particularly in qualifying, to try and deliver on that potential and justify his his place. What do you think, Corinne? Do you think if you were in the t- position of that team, racing point, ahead of becoming Aston Martin, talking about winning races in three years, I think was their target, what would you be looking at driver-wise, particularly with people like Vettel on the market, uh, who I quite like the idea of going there, or, or Fernando Alonso? I think it's the responsibility of any team to be looking at the entire driver market. But what we have in, in Racing Point is, in some ways, it's a slightly unprecedented situation, isn't it? Where, you know, you've, you've got the T 
team, as as Glenn mentioned, the the father of one of the drivers is the is a sort of major um, backer, and it's the man who's put the consortium together and now owns a car company that's going to be a new title sponsor. So um, it, it is somewhat unprecedented. It, it it's kind of like the Takuma Sato Superaguri thing, wasn't it? It was is almost a given that Taku was going to be in in one seat, but um, you know it. it it's very hard for me to get a reading on what they might do with Lance long term uh, because it's just an unprecedented situation. Yeah, that's that's true. But at the same time, I look at it, Lawrence Stroll has been successful in business, not through making poor decisions, has he? There's other investors, as you alluded to there. And if I was an, if I was an investor in that, particularly with the whole Aston Martin thing connected to it, and if you want to be taken seriously as a Grand Prix team, you can't carry passengers – now, I get the feeling that the equivocation, what I see as equivocation, others will characterise it as confirmed and think we're reading too much into it. I disagree that the phraseology is very important and specific in this case, but it feels to me like they're they're hoping that Lance gets it together in 2020. You know, his high points, there have been some, there've been some good high points, but nowhere near consistent enough. And he was at about 40% of Checo's points last year, which isn't enough. He needs to... You know, he needs to get up to 75% before you even start thinking that's getting into the, the okay range. So for me, it's a it's an important measure of how important and how serious this project is because it's not just one person flinging money at a race team for his son, is it? It's about more than that now. It's grown. It includes a car company. It's ambitious. If the racing point is exactly the same performance profile as a McLaren and a Renault, then chances are they'll finish behind them because of Lance Stroll's weakness compared to Ocon, Ricardo, Norris, Sainz. So that, that's a serious problem, isn't it, Glenn? Yeah, and I, I, the more I think about this, the more I can see that wording as perhaps even if Lance got replaced, he wouldn't leave the team entirely. I could certainly see a thing where they decide that they're competitive enough that a superstar driver would make the difference. Because this is a team, don't forget now, that is talking about fighting for race wins and, and ultimately becoming a championship contender in the not too distant future and until Lance shows that he can contribute that if this say if this all worked out exactly as they want it to and Racing Point or Aston Martin made it a big four instead of a big three in F1 Lance with what he's shown us up to now would stand out of of those eight drivers across those four teams he would stand out as the weak link and if Aston are going to take this seriously. There does come a point where I don't think Lawrence Stroll's involvement in F1 is no longer about just having a seat for Lance. So I could see something where they go, right, we can get a Vettel, we can get an Alonso, we can get some superstar driver. Lance will stay with us. He'll become a test and development driver or whatever. And and he could, he could stay on board. And I also think it's interesting. I don't know what you two heard during the time that Lance was at Williams, but I certainly heard whispers from the team that there was often an a feeling inside Williams that perhaps Lawrence was more interested in Lance being an F1 driver than Lance was. And that was when Lance was a rookie and perhaps struggling to, to find his feet straight out of F3. I'd be interested to know what that's like now. But I can also see something here where Aston Martin's ambitions and the plans Lawrence has for the team are no longer about Lance. And, and as you said, Ed, if there are different investors and shareholders saying we've got to do something, we've got to get a star driver, I can believe that Perez is locked down for as long as they say he is. But I do think that the door was already open 
and I'm still not sure it's intentional for for Racing Point to tell us that it was open. But I agree with you, Ed. I think our interpretation of it is right. And I think it's a big ask for Lance to take the step up he would need just to get on Perez's level, let alone, you know, the other big guns that Racing Point and Aston Martin are supposedly aiming at. Well, this is an interesting one. I'll tell you what you think on the screen, but just to throw into it, I think the point Glenn made about the overall, how the full motivation of, of Lance Stroll, you know, clearly he's putting he's putting a level of effort in, but you've got to leave no stone unturned if you want to do the job in the top level of any of any sport. And that, to me, the question is, can that raw material, and there is raw material there, we've seen flashes of it, low downfall circuits, he's, uh, and the wet, he's pretty good. He's not a complete no-hoper. He didn't win European F3 by chance, no matter what the advantages of the situation he was in. He's still allowed to drive the car. So do you think that, do you think Lance can, can crack it? This is a big year for him. This, you know, irrespective of how many races we have, this is a big year for him because they, it's kind of their last year going sort of under the radar as a racing point, isn't it? Next year, as, as Glenn mentioned, they, they basically become a works team. They become a manufacturer team. Admittedly, a much smaller manufacturer than Daimler or Renault or Fiat Chrysler Group or whatever, but they're still the manufacturer. And that brings a whole bunch of different pressure to to the team on the whole. So I think if he he's got all the tools around him to work with the team, and I'm sure they they will do anything that he needs to try and help him get on the same level as Perez. But ultimately, the driver's got to do it. You know, he's he's got to deliver in the cockpit. And I think if he does do it this year, then he'll deserve that seat for 21. If he doesn't do it, then if, if he doesn't deliver and still gets the seat for 21, then as you guys have mentioned, that starts to then raise questions about, you know, the bigger bigger picture of the team. If he doesn't deliver and they replace him, then that's a good statement from the team to say, it's all about on-track performance. And, you know, by then maybe um, they get the guy who's not in the Mercedes, whether it's George Russell or Bottas, you know, whoever Mercedes take, they get the other one. Uh, because we know they've got a very close alignment with Mercedes. We know that Daimler have an interest in Aston from the road car side as well. So there's there's clearly a cooperation going on between those two teams. Um, and why not extend that to, to the driver lineups? Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to watch him this year. Qualifying is a really, really important thing to him. And actually, he might have reason to uh, regret the fact that reverse grid qualifying races have been uh, have been abandoned. Uh, we obviously saw this proposed. Mercedes stood against it. Toto Wolff's explained the reason why the team blocked it, framing it as an old idea that had been turned down and recycled. So, Karun, is it time for the reverse grid's idea just to, just to die and be left alone? Or do you think there's still merits in consideration? My my personal thing is, I think we should have tried it. Uh, I, I Listen, we all understand why Toto doesn't want it. It's because he's got the winning team, obviously. But I think sometimes the sport needs to think about the bigger picture. And I'm slightly annoyed that the system we have, you know, required unanimous agreement. You know, it would have been great if, if, if FOM um, and, and the FIA could have just made that decision and said, this is what we're doing. And, you know, I'm not saying we need to do it every weekend. I'm saying, we, you know, we could have done it at three of the weekends for the start, see how it went, if the fans liked it, if people tuned in to watch it. It's a great spike in numbers, great spike in interest. Then you roll it out at six races the next year. So I, 
but personally, I think they they the proposal got that we all heard about. I didn't like, if I'm perfectly honest with you, I I don't like the idea that the grid for the Grand Prix was being set by a sprint race because I think that uh, by a reverse grid sprint race or whatever. I I didn't like that whole idea. Um, I I think that what we have in qualifying is probably the best part of the weekend for me. I love the way the format builds up. You get this crescendo at the end of Q3. We're all there at the edge of our seats watching the sector times come up at the end of of every part of qualifying. It's brilliant. But I think, you know, we should have had qualifying done on Saturday morning and that determined the grid for for the race on Sunday. So that stays as it is now. It satisfies Toto Wolf. It satisfies the purists. That's fine. But we should have had three additional races for half points on a Saturday afternoon with either a partially reverse grid or a fully reverse grid. I, I don't I don't really have a strong opinion on that. You could have done like GP2 or so Formula 2 do and reverse the top eight or top ten, um, which I personally am I'm, I'm more for it. I think it would have been... It would have been a, a much more interesting race to see Renault's at racing points and Toro Rosso starting at the front. Um, and, and then they would have had enough pace to at least lead, maybe even the first stint. Whereas I think if you put the, the Williamses at the front, for example, you know they would have been overtaken pretty quickly by the top cars. So I think a full reverse grid doesn't necessarily, um, you know, it's not necessarily the best thing because you risk much more jeopardy in terms of damage for the lead guys, which is what Toto's concerned about. So I think if they'd come up with a with a less radical proposal that still ensure the, the the purism and the sanctity of the Grand Prix stayed the same, i.e. the grids determined by qualifying, etc. But you just had these three additional races with a reverse grid of some form and, and half points. So you did you know, you have to give points because that forces the drivers to go for it. But you don't give full points because that devalues the main Grand Prix. And I think if they'd done something like that, there would have been a higher chance for it to be accepted. The key thing for me is that whether you like the idea or not, this year was the year to try it. We've already outlined why this year is going to be like no other in F1's history and probably in F1's future. So so why not give it a go? Just Even if it was just a couple of times. I, I am a fan of the idea, but, and I, I said this when it, was being talked about before we found out Mercedes had blocked it. I want to see it to prove to myself whether it's a good or a bad idea. I'm I'm more than prepared to see it in action and go, that didn't work. That isn't what F1's about. Uh, Something about the way the top teams played their strategy or or the, the risk of accidents was too high or anything like that. I'm more than prepared to accept all of those arguments. I just wanted to see it. You know, I, I don't want it. I don't want those arguments to be hypothetical anymore. And this was a great opportunity. I actually like what Ross Braun said. I think it was in an interview with BBC, maybe, where he said he actually preferred Toto's stance on it when he was just saying we don't want that because we're the best team. And actually, when when Toto came up with his reasons, where he tried to give much more of a, a detailed explanation of the reasons it was wrong, Ross didn't like that so much. But I, I can see there's now talk about what else can they do to experiment and. And it'll just be it'll be what F1 always ends up with in these situations where it's some tiny difference that's really watered down and doesn't really tell us anything. So I really want I admired the the ambition from F1 and the rest of the teams 
to give it a go. I completely understood why teams like Red Bull and, you know, Christian Horner's pushing for it so much because really for the same reasons Mercedes don't want it. We know the Mercedes is a particularly bad car in traffic, for example, because of the way its aero works. Red Bull probably think that their car is better in traffic. We know Max Verstappen's great in traffic. Um, so everyone's got their own reasons for their position, but it's incredibly frustrating that we finally got to the point where nine teams were willing to try it and we still end up in this in these exceptional circumstances with a scenario where one team could block something, uh, which I think ultimately would have been quite a harmless test, even if you only do it a couple of times. And I think especially because Mercedes arguably have the best racer on the grid. <laughs> you know, that that's the bit that I find most annoying is if I had to put money on a wheel-to-wheel battle on any one of those 20 drivers, it'd be that bloke in the silver car because he is exceptional. And the other interesting thing is I think people often focus on disadvantaging the fastest package or somehow imagine it'll allow the slowest car to win, which won't happen. I guess Monaco's the one place where (laughs) something like that could happen. But the thing that would really be interesting for me to see would be if you have the six top team cars starting at the back, which this system should have, not only are they trying to come through, they're also battling amongst themselves. So not only are we going to see Lewis Hamilton dive-bombing Antonio Giovinazzi for a key pass, that's fine. We see that sort of thing when cars come through. But also, you might have a situation where Lewis or Max Verstappen or whoever, behind one of their direct rivals, thinks, oh, hang on a minute, he's hesitated a bit trying to to pass Giovinazzi. I've got a chance. And so it just creates this extra set of variables for, for races again. I think that there are arguments against it. I mean, obviously, your your suggestion, Karuna, I, I can see the merit in that. It's maybe a little bit convoluted in some ways, and I'm not that keen on points for anything other than the main race. But that's the kind of disconnect in my thinking. I quite like the idea of trying to reverse grid thing, but at the same time, I don't want to lose qualifying, and I don't really like points for qualifying. So that, that Venn diagram in my position doesn't quite cohere at any point. Um, but it just would have been... Even just to see it a couple of times or once would have been really interesting, wouldn't it? And the one thing we can be sure of is people would have watched it. I think the people who say, oh, I'd never watch this again. Okay, maybe a few of them were being sincere, but I'd be very surprised because it's just something very, very interesting. This is a really key point, actually. This debate's gone on for years. And I remember last year when we were at Autosport and there was a discussion about it again. And we put out a poll Uh, on social media and instead of it being do you want reverse grid races or not it was if f1 tried it would you watch it and instead of the usual everybody saying no it's a terrible idea i think we had something like 80 85 said yes so again i don't think f1 has much to lose because everybody would try it out just out of curiosity and one of the reasons i think we should try is what karun said right at the start that is arguably the highlight of a grand prix weekend at the moment is qualifying and that says that tells me immediately that there's something wrong with the races at the moment. But I think it's really important. F1's got a huge fan base, a huge uh, amount of stakeholders who all have their opinions. And I do think that the arguments against this, and one of the big ones certainly, is that the sanctity of the Grand Prix itself. I know purists like Sebastian Vettel for years have always said, don't do anything that damages the integrity of what makes Sunday afternoon special. And I think all of those things would have to be taken into consideration. So F1 would have to tread very carefully. But if there was ever a time to have a go, this year was it. And ultimately, no, nobody questions the sanctity of any Grand Prix pre-1933. Because it's Monaco 33 where qualifying was first used. Before that, it was usually done by ballots. I know I'm going back a long way there. But 
as long as you can maintain the importance of the race and not give away massively cheap victories, all you're doing is just slightly redefining the parameters. I mean, that's drifting into a bigger question. The ideal is, I think we've we've talked about this on the podcast before, is to have a Formula One that is a more level playing field in terms of opportunity. There's a number of measures that are coming in, the cost cap, the sliding scale of aero, test restrictions, etc. All these things, the 2022 regulations, I hope to do that, are designed to try and make it a little bit more of a level playing field. And then there's more more potential for every team to get better results rather than, it's not trying to equalise performance, but equalise potential and opportunity. But we've got, we're not there yet. Now, it's one thing I do think is really important. And this argument came up last week is that I, I, I wouldn't be comfortable with a sprint race victory, whether it's reverse grid or anything else that being counted as a Grand Prix win for that driver. Um, so I think it was uh, Tom Dillman racing driver raised with me. He said, Oh, this will ruin the records. Well, firstly, the records are ruined. We talked about 1950s earlier at eight races in a season. So, you can't compare a Fangio season to a Hamilton season already. The records got torn up when they changed the points system for 2010 and suddenly the record point scorer became almost meaningless. So I don't mind about that, but I completely agree that if, say, Daniel Ricciardo was able to win a 30-lap race at uh, the Red Bull ring where he had an advantageous starting position, I don't think that would then mean Ricciardo had an extra Grand Prix win on his CV. And I, I think there's there's careful distinctions like that. And, you know, we were talking about Karun's format maybe being too convoluted. Maybe this is one of the issues. All of the ifs and buts and, and extra little bits of small print you'd have to add on, maybe that is too much work as well. Uh, but I think this has really highlighted, once again, the decision-making process in F1 is just something that holds it back more often than it helps, isn't it? You know, this this thing that, that uh, the figureheads of the sport... You know, you've got great minds there, like Pat Simmons and Ross Braun and, you know, Rob Smedley's there now. You've got really good, experienced engineering racing minds, but they just can't make the decisions like they would want. Uh, You know, really, uh, and Ed, you and I have talked about this in frustration. You know, simple thing, like force the drivers to use all three compounds in every Grand Prix, you immediately, it, it is a single line in the sporting regs, one sentence that'll, that'll make sure that every Grand Prix is now a two-stop race, at least, if not more. It, it'll mean you'll have a two-step variance on tyres sometimes between people and, and thing, and it would just mix the racing up. And for no, no big effort, you know, the Pirelli are making the tyres anyway. You'd also then, the teams would have a bigger challenge because they'd have to get their car working across a wider range of compounds. How often yeah. do we see they only take one set of whatever the hardest compound is, they run it if they have to, but they don't really have to worry about it. If you know you're going to do even five or six laps on that in the race, you can't afford to ignore that. So it becomes a greater setup challenge as well. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. This this is what you know frustrates me about the decision-making process at the moment is you know, these are, are simple things. When you ask, when you ask someone like a Pat Simmons or a Ross Braun, you know, these. I'm not specifically talking about this one, but on various things, over time, when you talk to them, they go, "Yeah, it's a good idea. I wish we could push it through," but it, it, and they can't. And this this is one of the things that you know we haven't got a new Concord Agreement signed. You know, obviously, but things are taking shape in terms of the rules and all this sort of stuff. But I really hope that when the new agreements get signed there's some change in this decision-making process that allows the the powers at the top of the sport to to just 
make some some big unilateral decisions and just crack on. Yeah, I'd love to see that. And I think even if even if we can't get to the point where just Ross and his band of merry men just make up all the rules and they get on with it, if we can just get away from this unanimity for the short term fixes and it get whether it gets to a majority or, you know, six or seven out of ten, whatever it is, even that would be would be a step forward. And I do I do find it very interesting though that Ross is in this position now where he's trying to do things for the good of F one. And every now and then he has to admit that if he was back on the other side of the fence where he was for so long, he would be blocking these things as well. You know, he's talked very well in the past and there's a lot of detail in his book about one of his big jobs when Ferrari was winning all the time was making sure that no surprise rule changes could come in or any change that Ferrari didn't think could work for them. He said um, they, they would take pretty much any change on the chin if they had an 18-month lead time on it because they backed themselves to do a better job. But at the same time, they were always steering things back towards a way that would suit them, would suit Bridgestone, would potentially suit Michael Schumacher. But I would hope that within all that, Ross can also understand that that shows how flawed the system is and that the guys in his position now should be making the calls because they're going to be the most objective. It's also difficult when you've got a situation that the one team that blocked it, because it would it won't be meritocratic and it'll obviously won't will go against them. Ultimately, Mercedes is one of the teams that's benefited from the not very meritocratic division of the, of the money. You know, Mercedes, just for being Mercedes, gets a, a, a bigger chunk of money than, say, Racing Point. You know, so the decks the decks loaded. They had to win some championships to unlock it, didn't they? They did, yeah, they they did. That's true, but they still, as in, unlike Ferrari, yeah, yeah well, yeah, Ferrari had the thing. But what I mean is, the thing is that that constructors championship bonus thing is normally a negotiated thing. It's, it's not a thing enshrined there that if Racing Point went and won two championships or whatever, they'd straight away qualify for it. Oh, it's still rubbish. So, so it, you that. know, it's a negotiation that that they that they won the negotiation to get it and. That's the thing I don't like. That even that this season, if Ferrari, Red Bull, and Mercedes finished eighth, ninth, and tenth in the constructors' championship, which isn't going to happen, but they'd still get a huge pile of money out of it just for being who they are. Which is why the whole new Concord is so important because that will balance these things up. I've no problem if you just want to divide it up. First gets the most, second, third. You know, you can say that's prize. That's fine. You don't have to do so do so much to help others catch up, but. You know, you uh, uh, you can't necessarily take a position where you argue that the that the decks being loaded against you if you have this reverse grid thing when you've also benefited from that. You can tell yourself, well, we negotiated that; anyone could have done that, done the same. We just did better. But this is motorsport, not business sport, isn't it? And it's it's not about the negotiation; it's about what happens uh, on track. But anyway, that's uh, that's a, a bigger subject. I think the the big thing is we're all excited to get back to racing, which is uh, very positive. And uh, I think no matter what happens, it's going to be brilliant to be able to, to watch a Grand Prix again. Uh, thanks very much, Karun Chandok and Glenn Freeman, for your insight. Do head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Loads there from the, the world of Formula One, from, from myself, from Gary Anderson, Mark Hughes, Scott Mitchell. Obviously, things breaking all the time. Check out our YouTube channel. Just look for the race there. Loads of videos there. We've just put one out about uh, liveries that never raced ahead of uh, Williams unveiling their new livery. Because obviously, they're 2020. Uh, Rocket livery will not appear. And do check out some of our other podcasts, including Bring Back VTANs, hosted by Glenn Freeman, the Gary Anderson F1 show, and our eSports, MotoGP, and Formula E podcast. We'll be back soon with more from the Race F1 podcast. <laughs> <laughs>